Luke 4, verses 31 to 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him, kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, what do you think of when you think of the most powerful thing in the world? The thing that packs the most punch. Perhaps you think of some large energy source, like the Three Gorges Dam in China, which is taller than the Washington Monument and much longer than the Brooklyn Bridge. It's said that the megawatts produced every day by that dam could power all of Orlando for two weeks. Pretty powerful. Or maybe you like to think of something a little bit more on the small side. Maybe something like the Athena laser made by Lockheed Martin, which burned a hole through the hood and engine of a small truck from over a mile away. That packs a punch. Maybe your mind goes away from engineering and, and goes to nature instead, and you think of maybe the largest mammal, I believe, or one of them, the blue whale. Uh, a 150-ton blue whale can put out 120 kilonewtons of power roughly double the thrust of an F-15 fighter jet. But then again, there are the smaller things in nature, right? I mean, what's more amazing than the rhinoceros beetle that can lift 850 times its weight? That's like a 350-pound linebacker lifting 80 Toyota Camrys. Well, if you like your fun facts, there's your fix for this morning. My point is, though, we're all in awe of things that are powerful, things that are great and forceful, big and small. We find ourselves both frightened by and attracted to things that are more powerful than we are. 
But the thing all these objects have in common that we just talked about, a dam, a laser, a whale, a beetle, the thing they all have in common is that they derive their strength from something external to themselves, right? A dam wouldn't be more powerful than a chunk of concrete if it wasn't for water. A laser is built by an engineer. A whale and a beetle are sustained by food and oxygen. But what about power itself? What about the source of power? Is there such a thing as something or someone who is powerful just because that's who they are? Well, in the passage our sister Terry just read for us, we see someone so powerful that his power is innate to his very being. He doesn't need to source his strength to anything outside himself. He alone is powerful. What a picture, dear church, Luke gives us this morning of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, my prayer is that our lives would be changed as we consider the power and authority of the Savior, the suffering servant, this morning. There's a lot in this passage. Uh, You could preach 50 sermons on this passage, but I think the, the the big headline three words of this passage are, Authority, identity, and purpose. Authority, identity, and purpose. Jesus's authority, identity, and purpose. So let's look at authority, and this will be our longest point, because I think this is the overarching theme of this passage. Jesus's powerful authority. Look with me, church, at verse 31. So Luke, who's our gospel historian, Dr. Luke, uh, he writes, Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. So Capernaum was a city on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it was no Nazareth. Uh, so we, we looked at Nazareth last week. Nazareth was a sort of a humble, no-name village. Capernaum was a thriving hub of economy and commerce. And like we found him last week, Jesus is again teaching in the synagogues. So Luke there says, Jesus was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were, again, astonished at his teaching. That seems to be a theme in Luke's gospel, doesn't it? Jesus' teaching is met, at least at this beginning part of his ministry, with amazement and marveling. But there at the end of verse 32, we get a little bit more detail. We see the, the very cause, the very reason these residents of Capernaum are so astonished. They see that Jesus' word possessed authority. So we all understand the concept of an authoritative voice, don't we? So if you're writing a report for school, or you're listening to a news story about the conflict this past week, or you're researching your next car purchase, you're going to be looking for authorities on those things, things you can believe, people who know what they're talking about, people who have written the book on it, right? But the Jews would have had that right? They had teachers. They had scribes who were well-versed in the ways of Judaism, in the Old Testament. But now Jesus arrives, and Jesus, Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. Jesus is different. In Mark's parallel accounts of this story in his gospel, he adds one more detail. He says, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Why? For Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See, Jesus' very word possesses its own authority. His authority is not derived from something else. He's the author of the Old Testament. 
He's the author of creation. And so when he, he looks at the Old Testament, like the scribes would have, he doesn't come as a mere interpreter or even a mere preacher. It's like taking a class on Hamlet and Shakespeare showing up. Jesus' words are intrinsically powerful and full of authority because he derives authority from no one else. And the people, though they don't really grasp this yet, are just astonished by this new teaching with new authority. Jesus teaches with new authority no one has seen the likes of before. And as we'll see as we continue in the Gospels, Jesus' word possesses authority over demons, over nature, over sickness, in John 11, wonderfully, even over death itself. Jesus is the creator, the one through whom the earth was called into his existence. His word is not like our words. Think about the words you spoke this morning. You know, your words expressed intention, desire, As we sung those words to those hymns, our words expressed truth, objective truth, but truth outside of ourselves, true whether we exist or not, whether we speak the truth or not. His word is not like our words. His words accomplish his will. His words act. His words are powerful. His words don't merely kind of come with an authoritative bearing, but they are authority themselves. When God speaks, when Jesus speaks, you could say he speak acts. His very words are active. The scribes and religious leaders could talk about the word of God. Jesus is the word of God, made flesh. And as the readers of Luke's gospel, 2,000 years later, church, we're here and we're, we're about to see then Jesus' authority demonstrated. We're about to see some object lessons in Jesus' authority in Luke's first account of a miracle by Christ. So look with me at verse 33. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So like I I said earlier, we don't have time to dig into the theology of demons this morning. Uh, That's one of the reasons I gave away that little book by Mike McKinley earlier to a few of you. If you have further thoughts or questions, though, let's get coffee or send me an email. I'd love to talk about that more this week. And don't worry, this won't be the first time we talk about demons in Luke's gospel. Maybe you will worry about that. But for our purposes this morning, let's just recognize that demons are real. They are servants of Satan. And and even though we in the Western world kind of usually chalk up demons and spirits to kind of either archaic ancient times in the Dark Ages or, or maybe even currently to more kind of spiritistic countries around the world, the truth of spiritual warfare is just as true for us sitting in these seats today as it was for this man in the synagogue 2,000 years ago. Demons have the ability to exercise influence and attack on God's, on people. And this man in the synagogue at at Capernaum is being plagued in this way. What an occasion then, what a setting for Jesus to show his first miracle in Luke's gospel. So in a way, church, as we look at this one little story, we see in microcosm, we see in kind of a thumbnail sketch the whole point of Jesus' ministry. He has come to reverse the curse of the fall and condemn the work of Satan. 
So this demon understands that, right? He understands who Jesus is, and he is freaked out. He is terrified. He asks Jesus if he's come to destroy him. He says, have you come to destroy us? There's, there's disagreement about what that us refers to. It could refer to kind of like him and all his, his fellow henchmen demons that are trying to work Satan's will in the world. It could also mean the, the demon and the man that he is oppressing, right? I tend to think it's that one. I think perhaps the demon is trying to show Jesus, you think you're going to get rid of me? Or you're going to have to kill that man to get to me. You have to destroy a man made in God's image to get to me. I don't know. I think those are two good options. But Jesus is not at all threatened, is he? I mean, remember who we've just seen Jesus to be. He has all authority because he is authority in and of itself. And destroying evil? Well, that's exactly why he's come. In 1 John chapter 3, we read something that can't get much clearer. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So yes, demon. Maybe that was a rhetorical question from you, but the answer is yes. Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. If the demon wanted to injure the man he was oppressing, if he was saying to Jesus, over that man's dead body you get to me, Jesus has none of that either. His power is a power that is precise. The man is left unharmed. Jesus is in complete control of this entire situation. And the crowd is stupefied. They haven't seen power like this. Maybe they've seen some sort of incantations or, or spells. They haven't seen just a dude say, be gone, and it's gone. This is a mere word of authority. In verse 38, Jesus leaves the synagogue. Kind of mic drop moment. Uh, he goes to Peter's house in Capernaum. And Jesus goes to Peter's house. His mother-in-law's there. Uh, and... The mother-in-law has what Luke calls a high fever. Remember, Luke is a physician. And so unlike the other gospel writers who are covering this account, he describes this not merely as a fever, but he wants to say it's a high fever. It's dangerous. Some of you have experienced some of those high fevers, including myself this past week. Not me, people in my house. So we're not sure exactly if, if this is linked to another disease uh, so Capernaum kind of sat in low sea level. That's why it said he went down to Capernaum. So it's kind of like a kind of nice little pot to broil disease. Um, but we're not sure. Whatever the case, though, Peter implores Jesus for help. And in verse 39, we read, And Jesus stood over her in a position of authority and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. It's very similar language to what has just taken place with the demon, right? Jesus rebukes, same word, and the fever leaves. I don't think that means necessarily that the fever is kind of demonic or demon-caused. Instead, I think what's being communicated here by Luke is that Jesus is confronting all the forces of sin in our world, and he's defeating them all, one by one. So he sees the, the forces of spiritual darkness and oppression, and he beats it. 
And then he sees the forces of sickness and disease, things brought into a broken world through sin and our rebellion against God, and he beats it. Jesus has all authority. Now, if, like me, you kind of grew up in a, in a home that read the Bible, which, praise God, many of us have, that's a wonderful gift. Uh, I think you probably have had times where you were really scared of these sorts of passages, even talking about spiritual warfare in general. I, I remember as a child being just kind of in dread of, of demons. Like, could that happen to me? And over time, by God's grace, that fear has diminished, not because I've outgrown a sort of superstition or, or don't believe that same doctrine the same way anymore, but because I've been taught more and I've learned more about the incredible power of Christ. It's like, it's like seeing an army coming towards you and you're on the front lines and you are struck with fear, but then you turn around and an army 20 times greater is behind you and they're going to fight with you. Christian, look at this picture of Jesus that Luke is painting for us. He is so powerful, he can roll back the forces of darkness with mere words. Darkness doesn't stand a chance. Your darkness doesn't stand a chance against the king. What a reason to submit to his authority. What a reason to follow after him. What a reason to, live, to dive deeply into his word and live by it. Jesus has all authority. Next, though, we see his identity. Look with me at verse 40. So the Sabbath has come to a close at sunset. So the Sabbath would run from Friday at sunset to Saturday at sunset. So it makes sense now that as the sun is setting, all the people are ready to get back to their activity. And what's their activity? They want to get healed. Verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Look back at verse 34. Again, we see the idea of Jesus' identity from the mouth of a demon. He says, I know who you are. I see your name tag, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. Jesus' identity is becoming clearer. He is the Messiah. But church, one thing that has been evident so far in our study of Luke is that the Jews are having really serious problems processing who Jesus is, right? Discerning his identity. I mean, they ask, who is this guy? He speaks like this. Who is this guy? Isn't he Joseph's son? Isn't it interesting then that here, we see some of the greatest clarity thus far in Luke about the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, this king sent from God, not from Jesus' people, but from Jesus' enemies. The demons are afraid of Jesus because they know exactly who he is. The power and authority he alone is possessing. 
There in verse 41, Luke writes that they knew he was the Christ. Remember, that word Christ is a Greek title, the same in Hebrew as the word Messiah. It's a, it's a title for a king. It means anointed one. And the Israeli people were looking forward to this capital A, capital O, anointed one that Jesus, that God had promised to send to his people to deliver them from darkness, to lead them into the light of salvation. We've seen that recently in Isaiah. And the demons know all that. They know the truth. And here they are scared out of their wits when Jesus comes. It reminds us of what James says in James chapter 2. So the New Testament author James, the half-brother of Jesus, is, he's talking about what true faith looks like for the Christian. And he says true faith cannot be mere belief. Why? Because he says, even the demons believe and shudder. Church, this, this kind of piggybacks on what we were talking about last week with the danger of familiarity with Jesus. See, the Bible teaches that we can know a lot about Jesus and not know Jesus. It's a frightening thought. But it's actually a liberating thought, if you think about it, because it shows us what true faith is. And if we have it, True faith trusts, true, true faith leans, depends on God. So one way to think about true faith in Jesus is in three parts. Knowledge, belief, and trust. Knowledge, belief, and trust. So many have knowledge about Jesus. They know his teachings. They know his character. They know the history. And that's important. But it's not enough, because even the demons have that kind of knowledge. And so the next part of true faith is belief or assent. That's not only knowing the facts about Jesus, but believing they are indeed true. Believing he is the Messiah. Believing he is the Son of God. Believing he is the one sent from heaven who can die on a cross and forgive sins. That's important. It's still not enough. Even the demons have that kind of belief. Here in this passage, they know who Jesus is. That's what scares them. It scares them because they believe it. <laughs> they know it's true. They have true knowledge and true belief. That can't be enough, though it is essential. What's left? It's trust. See, the demons know and believe and shudder. True faith knows and believes and trusts. It leaves all of the gods, all of their hopes, all of their allegiances, and it bows the need to Jesus alone as king. J.C. Ryle writes with painfully sharp yet helpful healing words when he says, we may know the Bible intellectually and have no doubt about the truth of its contents. We may have our memories well stored with its leading texts and be able to talk glibly about its leading doctrines. And all this time, the Bible may have no influence over our hearts and wills and consciences. We may in reality be nothing better than the demons. 
And so he resolves, let it never content us to know religion with our heads only. Let us see that our knowledge bears fruit in our lives. He asks two questions. Does our knowledge of sin make us hate it? Does our knowledge of Christ make us trust him and love him? Friend, don't be content with mere knowledge and belief. You must trust in Jesus. You must lean your whole weight of your being on Jesus. Sure, you'll struggle to do that. Sure, you'll be tempted to trust things all the time other than Christ. But you must find your identity and your meaning and your trust in him and fight for that. He's the king. He has all authority. You cannot just say you believe in him. Many will say they believe in him and not know him. You must live dependent on him completely. Friend, if you're here this morning and you kind of self-consciously know you're not a Christian, welcome. So we know it takes a lot of courage just kind of into a, come into a gathering, uh, one like this one, and just kind of like listen to all this stuff and not really believe it. So thank you for being with us. But I think this, this shows you why you can trust in Jesus. So if we're saying trust is necessary, why can you trust in Jesus? Well, each one of us knows that our lives is just not the way it's supposed to be. There's suffering in our lives. There's, there's wrong desire in our heads. Even when we think like, you know, my self-expression is perfect. That's what the world is telling us nowadays. Just express yourself and that's your good. We know in our heart of hearts that some, some things our hearts express are just evil and bad. That's why people go to prison still. There's evil. We know something is not right. God created this world to perfectly reflect him and his righteousness, yet it doesn't. Each one of us plays a role in that. We've polluted his good design by going our own way. And, and the news of the Bible, first of all, is that God needs to judge that. We've corrupted his good creation. We've got to pay the penalty for that. And the penalty, church, is death, spiritual death, separation from God's blessing forever. But the gospel says that when we needed to pay the penalty, God in his grace sent his son to willingly pay it for those who would trust in him. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took God's judgment for any who would lay down their pride and trust in him. Would you do that this morning? All right, we see Jesus' authority and identity. Finally, we see his purpose. Look with me at verse 42. Luke says, And when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Judea was kind of a, a region to the south of where he is right now. And so it makes sense that Judea here, he's using to describe kind of all of Palestine at this time. He needs to go. He needs to preach. 
So Jesus has had a long day and a long night. All of this has happened like in a 24-hour period. And he retreats, as we see him do so often, even in the next chapter, into a solitary place to pray. But it's not long before he's discovered. The people come to him. They're amazed at all he's done. I mean, overnight, he's just really helped their town become a healthier place, right? So they ask him to stay. Luke says they, they would have kept him from leaving. But Jesus says that's going to run contrary to the purpose his father has sent him to accomplish. He's come to make known the news of God's kingdom, God's salvation and reign through the Messiah. He's come to make that known throughout the land. It's not just for them. I mean, he loves Capernaumites, if that's what you call them. It's not just for them. Others need to hear it as well. I think there's some selfishness. There's eagerness that's understandable, but I think there's some selfishness that we see in the hearts of these people at Capernaum. And they've seen him do so much. If he'd just stay. But he shows them his ministries for those who need him, and that's not just them. There's many more. He must follow the will of his father, not their selfish will. And so, church, for the second week in a row, we conclude with a clear application to our mission as Christians. See, Jesus here does not see it as optional to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. He says, I must. It is necessary for me to do this. For Jesus, it is not optional to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Is it optional for you? Is it optional for me? Jesus says, I must preach the good news. Is there a must in your evangelism, friend? Or is it more of a should or might or someday or when the opportunity hits me in the face, maybe? Church, the gospel, by its very nature, breaks out from the places where it's at work. It spreads Good news always spreads. What better news to spread than the best news? And so here, Jesus says the gospel must break out of Capernaum. It can't stay here. It must break out of Capernaum, and it must keep spreading. Couldn't we apply that to us as well? The gospel must break out of Loudon Valley Baptist Church. And it must spread to other towns as well. Round Hill, Hamilton, Charlestown. Lovettsville, Brunswick. The towns from which we come, it must spread to those other places through us. It cannot remain here. It must break out. We must obey the mission of the kingdom. It has saved us from darkness and death and hell and Satan forever. It will save others in the same way as we obediently and humbly follow the Savior's call. See, the demons' voices are shut up when they utter Christ's identity for reasons we'll get to as we go on into Luke's gospel. But our mouths have been opened. We, the demons knew the identity of Jesus and they were shut up. We know the identity of Jesus and we're told to speak it out. Jesus says to us, our king comes to us with a mission. He doesn't say, be silent. He says, speak up, make my name great. Great. 
the man in the synagogue had an unclean spirit in him that was silenced. We have the Holy Spirit within us that yearns to speak through us. So will we proclaim the message of this powerful, authoritative Savior? J.C. Ryle again meditates on the identity of Jesus. He says, Christ is the appointed healer of every evil which sin has brought into the world. Christ is the true antidote and remedy for all the soul-ruining mischief Satan has wrought on mankind. Christ is the universal physician to whom all the children of Adam must come if they would be made whole. Church, how will they know? How will the children of Adam know if we don't tell them? We know the identity of our Savior. We know the authority of our Savior. We know the purpose and mission of our Savior, and that is our mission as well, to glorify him in our lives and in our words to those around us. So let's do it. Never, ever standing merely on our own willpower or guilt or even obligation, but standing in Jesus's power, Jesus's authority that works even in weakness, even when we stumble over our words, even when our hearts grow weary, even when the neighbor catches us angrily hitting something in, in, in rage, when, when, somebody ca- when somebody catches you in sin. God works in the weakness and humility of his people. You don't need to be perfect to share the gospel. Church, look to the Savior. No power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck us from his hand. So till he returns or calls us home, here in the power of Christ, let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, what a picture we get here of your majesty and power. We pray for any here who know a lot about you who've read your word, memorized texts, but haven't put their trust in you. Would you bring them to yourself today? And for our church family, help us to be fueled not by mere duty, but by the powerful reign of King Jesus to make his name known here and around the world. Lord, work in our weakness to show your power. For your glory, we pray. Amen.